0: Welcome back to another episode of Stories Between Us with a place where ordinary stories intersect in extraordinary ways so that one day a better story can be told. Today we are joined by Catherine Stewart who is the author of The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. She writes about politics, policy, and religion for the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC, and the New Republic. She's also the author of The Good News Club, which is an examination of the religious right and public education. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, it's so good to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yes.
0: <laughs> yes, so how are you doing today? Yeah, how, how's, how's things going? How's things in your neck of the woods?
1: Uh, things are interesting, as always.
2: Uh, yeah, how about you guys? Same, interesting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, 2020 has been like, you know. Yes. Oh my goodness. It's been quite a year.
2: I know. Yes. I know. I feel like, you know, I
1: can barely catch up. I've, you know, been writing about the religious right as a political force for over a decade. And I think we're really seeing a lot of the initiatives that they've laid the groundwork for come to fruition today. And it's disturbing, but there's also a lot of signs of hope, a lot of resistance, a kind of growing awareness of the reality of the situation. So, um, you know.
0: Yeah, and I think, and I, and I, in some sense, that's a great way to intro and go ahead yes. and get into our conversation, especially as you're talking about writing right now. I, I would love to start with this question. We start every week on Stories Between Us uh, with this question of how we understand our stories and how we understand ourselves today. So, especially as you think about, you said you've been doing this work for years. What was a kind of catalytic moment for you or formative events, either in your childhood or even in your professional life that made you like, yeah, this is something I definitely got to get involved in and writing on race uh, or religion, democracy and politics?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it started with one of these little incidents that seems so small, you really scarcely notice it until all of a sudden you're like living in a whole new world. So in 2009, I was living in a small town outside of Santa Barbara, California, with my six year old daughter and my baby boy. And I got an email from another mom uh, at our local public elementary school saying that a good news club. Was coming to the school. My first thought was great, you know, I love good news. And uh, then I heard that they were teaching Bible study from a non denominational standpoint. And I, I really wasn't too bothered at the time. I suppose I was really naive. I thought non denominational meant non sectarian. And I think you can teach about the Bible from a non sectarian standpoint mm-hmm. in public schools, as like history or as literature or stories. Um, But then I started to hear from families in towns whose kids went to these public elementary schools where other good news clubs had been established. And the more I heard, I have to say, the more concerned I became, a six-year-old girl that I knew got into a dispute on the playground with her classmate um, who was attending a good news club because the classmate had figured out that she was a member of a religious minority group and said, and sort of targeted her and said, you don't believe mm. in Jesus. So you're going to go to hell. And mm. the little girl that I knew, um, Zoe sort of pushed back on this and she said, that's not true. And the other girl said, I know it's true. Cause they taught it to me in school they don't teach things in school that aren't true. Mm. So that really got to the heart of the trouble with good news clubs. I don't have a problem with kids talking with their friends about, religion uh, at school. But I do have a problem with kids being deceived into thinking that the religion of the Good News Club is endorsed by the school and using that misinformation to kind of target and bully their peers. So, you know, I, I started to fig, you know ask questions about the Good News Club, like, why are they operating in public schools? Why are they so insistent on being in public schools? A, a group of evangelical parents in our neighborhood actually offered the club free and better space in the church that was literally next door to the school. It was a really beautiful church. And and the Good News Club leaders declined. They insisted on being in the school. And so I thought, well, you know, my evangelical friends don't want this club in the school, but the Good News Leader... It, club leaders say they need to be in the school so I really started to ask questions and I thought why do they need to be in the school and what do they really believe and you know how is it possible that they can enter the public schools you know when we have this sort of idea of separation of church and state as one of our sort of foundational ideas in our country and um I was really kind of stunned by the very strategic thinking of the movement behind these good news clubs. And I, and more I learned, the more I realized that first of all, good news clubs are just one part, one small part of a larger attack on public education. And the attack on public education is really just one small part of a much larger attack on America as a a modern democracy.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting. Especially as, as I think about, you know, this you you call it in your book it's not simply a culture war but it is a political war you know I recently wrote on evangelicals my story is kind of tied up in this kind of you know being in this evangelical space and one of the things I started to realize is that this space was more so in some sense it was like you know a political movement with religious rhetoric and every area of society. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. It's almost like, um, you know, it's a, it is, I'm glad you make that distinction. My concern is not with religion per se, you know, it's really about with the political actions of um, different religious groups and, and, you know, evangelicalism, as you well know, is very diverse. I mean, you know, uh, most evangelicals color didn't vote for Trump and, um, Mm. Four out of five white evangelicals may have voted for Trump. One in five did, five did not. So mm. sometimes people characterize this as about evangelicalism. It's not about religion. It's about a political movement that is exploiting religion for the purposes of concentrating power in the hands of a new elite.
0: Yeah, and and you write in your book, um, you know, the, the 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 kind of framework is. The Power Worshippers. Tell me a little bit about that. What what made you choose the framework, The Power Worshippers? I have so many questions based off your book, but first of all, just the title. Yes. What went into The Power Worshippers as, as it being a necessary title to communicate this reality?
1: Well, I think when we're trying to understand the movement, we can distinguish between the leaders and the followers of the movement. Now, when it comes to the rank and file the people who are sort of lending their support to the hyper-conservative political leaders that this movement favors, you know, we're talking about a pretty big and diverse collection of people with different interests. So a lot of them, um, when they're maybe casting their vote for Trump, aren't necessarily arguing for major changes in the way um, American uh, government is run. Many of them are voting on the issue of they just think, well, I got to vote for the guy who's against abortion, say, or the guy who's going to so you know defend the so-called traditional family or something like that. But when you, it's really the leaders of the of the movement that I was speaking to when I wrote about power worshipers. I mean, when you're talking about the heads of the right-wing policy groups, the heads of the legal advocacy groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom and Liberty Council and the Federal Society, which plays a role in grooming candidates for right-wing appointment, you know, appointments to the court. Um, when you're talking about the heads of the data organizations and the networking organizations, um, and, and those types of groups that are really kind of driving the movement, the media platforms. Mm-hmm. What they really want is a lot more power for themselves. They look forward to it and, and the political uh, politicians that, that they favor. They're looking forward to a time when most um, institutions of American society, including government, um, mm. law, our, um, education, even, are um, you know, those institutions are the hands of people who think as they do, who believe as they do. Um, sort of people who sort of fall under this rubric of sort of hyper-conservative Christianity. And, um, and they really are um, aiming for a more authoritarian form of political power. They don't, this is a movement that doesn't believe in pluralism. Look, America is irreducibly pluralistic, but this is a movement that's driving support for a political party that's making voter suppression and race-based gerrymandering a strategic imperative. They don't believe mm. in equality. You know, they're denying people the vote. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, and and they want power for themselves and and their allies. So that's why
2: I chose the word power for the subtitle. Wow, that's amazing. So um, for those who aren't familiar, what is religious nationalism, the religious right, and um, really the cultural and political war? And um, how long has it been happening?
1: Well, religious nationalism is a political ideology that ties the idea of America to certain religious and cultural and implicitly racial identities. Now, um, again, the ideology is anti-democratic because it says the foundation of legitimate government is um, is in a particular religion and insists that that's what makes us distinctive rather than our democratic system of governance or our pluralism or our constitution or our long, if very imperfect, history of, um, of bringing uh, people from different groups into a society. It's also um, religious nationalism, a really effective device. For mobilizing and often manipulating a large section of the American public in in order to control their vote, so religious nationalism is always appealing to a mythical history of America's allegedly Christian founding. Um, and I want to say something about religious nationalism. Um, mm-hmm. I it's not remotely unique to America. This whole idea right. of American exceptionalism, yes. I think yes. is Absolutely really yes. not. overdone, isn't it? Yes. So yes. you know, when, when leaders wow. like Pu- Putin in Russia or yes. Judah, who just won in Poland or Orban in Hungary or Erdogan in Turkey or leaders in, in Iran, for instance, when they bind themselves to religious conservatives in their countries to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political mm. power, we rightly recognize this as a form of religious nationalism, and that's what mm. we're seeing today with Trump's alliances with uh, religious hyperconservatives.
2: Yes, you know, and even the other Modi, even <laughs> even <laughs> Narendra Modi <Yes>. in India, <laughs>
1: the other Modi. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Yes, even um, even even President Narendra Modi in uh, in India really touts the same. The same type of I don't want to call it weaponry, but the same type of religious nationalism um, in the idea that it becomes very heavily anti-Muslim, anti-Christian um, yes. in a wow. space. Yes. In, yeah. in a space of uh, in a space of India, to And uh, I chose the word weaponized because that's really what it I think um, empowers people to do that are influenced by By this type of nationalism, it kind of empowers them in their own beliefs and values to think that um, that any anyone else is kind of other than does that make that, sense?
1: And absolutely. I mean this is what religious nationalism does rather than uniting a population, it divides it 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 strengthens yeah. you know tends to deepen existing divides. The leaders of these kinds of movements often. You know, will, um, will. Uh, it's always us versus them, the insider mm. versus the outsider, the pure mm. or the versus the impure. And if you look at a leader like mm. Trump, this is what he's trying to do. He doesn't ever, even with this horrible coronavirus. Uh, I mean, this global pandemic that we're all facing, you know, collectively mm. as a country. And wouldn't it be great if we had a leader who could sort of inspire us all to unite together yes. and we're going to come yes. together and through a combination of best mm. practices and caring for one another, we're really going to defeat this. Instead, it's it's always played for partisan gain. It's like you're an insider, mm. you're an outsider, an us versus them. So, um, you know, I think mm. we have to note that religious nationalism in practice almost never comes to an end in um, mm, you know, wow. a, a, a religious democracy, for instance, we don't we don't get we're not going to get a Christian democracy with Christian nationalism in the United States. It's natural destination, like what it's really going to lead to is more of like a kleptocracy led wow. by irrational, op- often nepotistic um, autocratic leaders in which um, instead of religion, you're, what you're often seeing too often is a organized hypocrisy. Mm. You know, where people feel like they have to sort of make, you know, make sort of religious signaling in order to, you know, be taken seriously rather than actually, you know, um, uh, using religion as an expression of genuine conscience.
0: Mm. Wow. Um, And, you know, that's this has actually been a long struggle in America, uh, especially as I think about the civil rights movement, where in some sense. Since the inception of our country, there has always been this type of holy war going on. Whose religion is going to win in the end? You know, is a religion that's that has the power of love going to win over a religion that has the love of power? And so as we think about, you know, our even our complicated history right now, you, you make the case. You know, that 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 America is not a Christian nation. And for me, being black and in this country and even being Christian, that's easy for me to agree with. Why do you think it's so hard for many white Americans to come to an understanding that, you know, America is not a Christian nation? And even that they believe even that in our collective memory is this understanding of Christianity and America Like what makes that so hard for people? As you've seen in your research, why is that so hard for people to grasp?
1: I think the movement has relied for so long on these kinds of myth makers. Like I'm thinking of David Barton. He's someone I, uh, he's a sort of has a, a prolific writer and he's also a a political operative and he's very deeply embedded in the movement i actually call him the where's waldo of the christian nationalist movement because he's he's everywhere he's on the head of you know various boards and he's you know advising the texas state board of education on curriculum but you know he he's really useful to this movement that wants to rewrite the history so they you know they they will assert you know over and over that america's founded as the so-called christian nation But I think what you said, um, you know, about the idea that there's always been a kind of um, diverse attitudes toward religion, even within Christianity, um, that kind of history has been erased from, you know, by Mm. movement leaders. I mean, I'm thinking about like, let's think about, you know, um, the idea of America as an authentically Christian nation was really kind of forged during the slavery era. Um, yes, which uh, where you had these um, pro-slavery theologians, I'm thinking about Robert Louis Dabney and James Henley Thornwell tied the idea of America to a specific set of, um, you know, the idea of an America as an authentically Christian nation and um, with hierarchies ordained by God. And, um, you know, it was this conflict uh, with they had this conflict with the abolitionists um, and and if you know Frederick Douglass, I want to just read a, a quote from you. He, you know, there were of course a number of abolitionists who advocated, to, you know, for the end of slavery, and they did so from what um, what uh, Douglass called humble pulpits. And he said, mm. you know, at the time you know, these abolitionists tend to be a distinctly disempowered minority in their own denominations. They weren't the, one, the mm. ones with the money. He said, a few heterodox and still fewer Orthodox ministers filling humble pulpits and living upon small salaries have espoused the cause of the slave. But the ministers of a high standing were almost to a man on the side of slavery. So you can mm. see that they were really, um, you know, uh, There was this dispute, even within Christianity, although it was really the empowered um, uh, pastors who were allied with, you know, money, you know, the idea of, quote unquote, private property, which is the enslavement of Mm. other human beings. So, you know, here's how um, Thornwell summed it up. He was one of those pro-slavery theologians. He wrote the parties, in the, he was writing about the conflict between abolitionist theologians and pro-slavery theologians. He said, the parties in this conflict are not merely abolitionists and slaveholders. They are atheists, socialists, communists on the one side, that's the abolitionists, and friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. So you see, he's identifying slaveholders with order and regulated freedom and abolitionists. He's decrying them as atheists. It's really very perverse. So, but this kind of thing happens all the time now. I think that you know, movement leaders sometimes save their most poisonous words to those who dare to identify as Christians of a different sort. We know there are a lot of progressive mm-hmm. Christians out there. I think, frankly, most American Christians reject the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents. And yet, they're constantly called socialists and communists and the far left, and you know, they're they're called atheists and and
2: what have you. Um, yeah, so I have actually a couple questions uh, follow- to follow up. My first one is um, whether you are familiar with um, Charles Jones, Charles Col- Colcock Jones. Um, he was a author who published a book in 1842 titled "The Religious Instruction of the Negroes in the United States." it it sounds awful it Uh. is um if if you if you if one day you just really just don't don't care about being happy and um (laughs) and really just want to dive yeah I really just want to dive into this piece of work I I recommend it I I bought it um I bought it for my significant other and um he still has yet to read it. So and he's I, I, I gifted it to him over a year ago. And uh, <laughs> he keeps he keeps looking at it, thinking about it, and it's like, No, nah, I'm not ready yet. Nah. <laughs> oh, it's, and it's awful. Yes. Yeah, so um it goes it has it has parts to it. And One of the parts in it, part three, is titled um, Obligations of the Church of Christ to attempt the improvement of the moral and religious condition of the Negroes in the United States by affording them the gospel. And um, it goes into different sections. Uh, under that part and um the second section says excuses in relation to a discharge of the obligations now proved to rest upon the church of christ usually advanced in the slave states so again going back to like i guess weaponizing why in in your opinion why was it so easy for the conviction of a religion um, to push forward an agenda for an entire people, I guess, and for someone to be so, I guess, um, confident, like like Charles Jones, um, to kind of prepare this piece of work to teach other slave owners to do the same thing?
1: Well, you know, r- religion is really easily exploited. And I think we're still seeing a lot of that today. And you can see a lot of sort of echoes of this idea of this, you know, absolutely reactionary uh, interpretation of religion and insistence on utter submission to its literalist doctrines, a kind of rigidity and insistence on hierarchies, the insistence that they're mm-hmm. ordained by God, and these ideas are pervasive. You know, with many differences, of course, nobody's literally arguing for enslavement anymore, um, although they are arguing for other forms of disempowerment, frankly, in, in many instances, um, uh, but it's, it's gotten a bit more, um, you know, it just takes slightly different forms, but that sort of the idea of these hierarchies and abject submission to biblical literalism, uh, mm-hmm. an obsession with sort of order, Um, You can see a lot of these um, uh, same elements promoted by a lot of the movement leaders today, you know, not just David Barton, who we mentioned earlier, Mm. but um, a lot of the folks like Ralph Ralph Drollinger, who has um, a uh, ministry targeting political leaders at the highest echelons of power. Um, uh, Robert Jeffress, a lot of the politically um, uh, motivated uh, and, and empowered pastors today. Um, and, and a lot of them, interestingly, I think there's a kind of through line that goes through American history. I mean, if you look at somebody like the mid-century, mid-century theologian Roussas John rushduni who mm. was an incredibly influential theologian at the time, he's known as sort of the godfather of Christian nationalism, he too was intensely hostile to the principle of equality. He endorsed, mm. again, austere biblical literalism, rigid hierarchies, ordained by God, he saw it as his job to rescue America from its commitment to godless secularism. And, oh, here's a really important part of it. So the, the alliance of uh, this kind of religious nationalism with, um, for lack of a better term, big money, like is, uh, mm. is has gone through. There's a kind of through line. So he too, and, you know, Rushduni also opposed government assistance to the poor. And he cast social welfare programs as slavery to the state, and he was such an admirer of these pro slavery theologians, he didn't just quote them in his work. He also reprinted um, some of them. He reprinted um, the works of Robert Louis Dabney uh, through his mm. own publishing house, Ross House Books.
2: So in this uh, in this election year, and many are trying to, I guess, kind of um, navigate the role of religious and public life, how are you going through this? And how do you think Christians and people of faith are navigating it? And in some sense, does this moment tell us about the role of religion in politics um, and or power and democracy? And um, I guess like, what does this administration and the pursuit of like, I guess the violence of a Christian America mean for this election time?
1: I think for a lot of religious people, the question of religion and politics today is deeply troubling as it should be. Um, I Mm. think for those of us who are asking questions Um, we have to grapple with the fact that religion has been exploited. Um, We're living in radically unequal times when powerful forces will grab at anything to advance their interests. And one of the things they're grabbing at is religion. I mean, Mm. let's be clear. Our democracy is under threat. uh, And this is what um, religious nationalism has wrought. It's a profoundly anti-democratic movement. Um, doesn't believe in equality or representative democracy. It drive, uh, drives support for a political party that engages in gerrymandering and suppresses the vote. Um, and I think this is something that we should all be thinking about. I think for a long time, it's been really hard for people to look at um, the political actions of religious groups. Because when you talk about that, it sounds like you're bashing religion. Yeah. And- yeah. And nothing could be further from the truth. I am not remotely mm. concerned. Well, I'm like I'm not concerned about a religion uh, as such, but I'm I'm really not you know bashing religion wholesale. What what I'm concerned about is is a political movement that's exploiting religion. Um, mm. and I'm definitely not talking about a denomination. Um, right. This is not about evangelicals or Christianity per se. It's about politics masquerading as faith
0: mm. and exploiting. Mm.
1: Uh, religion for political purposes,
0: and it, and this seems at least since the seventies, the mid seventies, this has seemed to be a recurring yes. theme uh, of, in, in some this, in some sense, this this pursuit of a white Christian America, hmm. where the guiding principles of 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 democracy must kind of uh, be rooted in theological narratives. And, and oftentimes, you know, as, as we think about even our socialization, we are in some sense all caught up into this socialization of normalizing this kind of, Id- this pursuit of a white Christian America. And and one of the things that's so interesting about this is that, you know, one can be, so I was inside of white evangelical church for a while, and one would deny that, you know, hey, I'm a white i'm a christian nationalist but your actions show that you know you're pursuing in your actions as white christian america you may be saying you know hey i'm just a conservative but your actions and even the communities and institutions that often one is tied to is you know trying to create this type of anti-democratic society where one group has power. And, you know, one of the things that's been so interesting, especially in this election year and as we think about a Trump presidency over the last four years is that maybe statistically we could say that many Christians, particularly white Christians would reject outright the idea of wanting to pursue a white Christian america or even would reject that they are a part of that but even as i see like okay there's a robert jeffress but also you know there's another some of the kind of big name evangelical pastors being like on trump's fake advisory board <laughs> uh who would not necessarily be like a robert Jeffries, but who would be like you know somebody who's a kind of big name evangelical and even these evangelicals are, they're, they're on the one hand saying, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm praying for my president and, you know, we are, you know, in the Trump presidency, it seemed like they quote Romans to say, you know, we ought to obey people in authority. But when Barack Obama was in office, there was this narrative of persecution. Mm-hmm. So how have you seen this narrative? You, and you write this in your book, I think, in your book about this narrative of persecution, as a powerful force for anti-democratic pra- practices in religion.
1: The persecution narrative is really important to them because it's how they build their base. Again, it's that sort of us versus them, the insider versus the outsider. They, um, It's, you know, for instance, you know they'll often say they're being persecuted because um they have to give services to lgbt people in healthcare and things like that and um or or if they you know they they want to say well you know the idea that we might have to um i don't know if we're working in a healthcare setting we might have to treat women who are um, going through problematic miscarriages and need hmm. need uh, need abortions to say they're like well that's a, a, a persecute that's they're persecuting me for my beliefs or hmm. or they'll say you know I shouldn't have to fulfill a, a prescription for birth control or something like that but you know it's not about cakes it's about the denial of essential often necessary services and it's it's even more than that it's about people with the so-called correct beliefs being allowed to um, heap their contempt upon Mm. groups of Mm. people whose you know characteristics or very being they happen to disapprove of and not only that demanding taxpayer money for their institutions like religious schools and churches so for instance they'll say you know well if the government is giving money to um public schools the government should be giving money to religious schools too on the same basis well Mm. we should just be treated like everybody else well First of all, religions are not treated the same way in the tax code. They have yeah. unique tax exemptions and um, sub- you know, other types of subsidies that other non-religious nonprofits don't have. They don't have have to open their books to the IRS and show how the money is spent, the public money. They're treated very different in our um, legal code. Religious groups are allowed to discriminate against... uh, Women against LGBT Americans, against people of other um, uh, ethnic groups uh, or religions um, in a way that other non-religious nonprofits aren't allowed to do. And it's precisely for these reasons that, you know, the taxpayer funds should not uh, be flowing to uh, these religious organizations that have all these unique tax exemptions and privileges Hmm. um, and, uh, and things like that. But, you know, I mean, the sham narrative of persecution, you know, getting back to that, it's really so valuable in mobilizing the base. Um, Mm. And they're not going to set it aside just because it's obviously a fable. It's used by leaders of the movement to solidify their power. So they're cultivating that sense of persecution all the time. Anything that fails to affirm them is um, something that they call oppressive to them. And this story... Mm. Of the of their redemption under the Trump administration is a kind of common theme, in uh, among these folks because in the Trump in, in Trump that movement has finally find you know finally found a leader who's going to sort of constantly mm. reaffirm their sense of persecution.
0: That's so real, especially as we're thinking about our struggle with our complicated history. You know, America. You know, we've been teasing out this idea. Both of you know religious nationalism and this myth of American exceptionalism, American as a Christian nation. So it seems to be to me that religious nationalism kind of finds its generative power on the one hand through persecution narratives, but also mm-hmm. with you know prosperity narratives as well. Oh,
1: yeah. And as
0: we think about this kind of idea of being caught in between persecution and prosperity. And even as we think about our complicated history that we are living right now, even in twenty twenty, this year has really been a a struggle to define history.
1: Oh, it really has. I mean, I know. I mean, people fight when you know about the past when they're fighting amongst themselves, and you know our society has very deep economic and racial conflicts and. You know, in that context, it's inevitable that people are going to fight over the past because whoever controls the past is going to control a big part of the present. And I really loved mm. what, you, what you said when you when you talked about prosperity and that sort of, you know, reference to the prosperity gospel, because this is a movement that has allied itself for a very long time with libertarian, hyper conservative economic ideology that says mm. government shouldn't provide anything to the poor. I mean, think about government is us. It's our taxpayer money. And, you know, shouldn't we be providing health care to one another? Shouldn't we be able to provide, you know, job training or food aid or things like this Mm -hmm. to the folks who need it? But if you look at what the folks who are in the um, right wing policy groups, like family research Council, say, they'll they'll call uh, government aid to the poor, direct aid to the poor as unbiblical. They'll say it's against the biblical model. You know, so they're they' and they're also you know, all of the politicians that they favor, they're not just voting to end abortion. They're not just working to sort of, you know end gay marriage and things like that. they're they're voting in economic policies that are widening existing economic equality. Uh, inequality. I'm sorry, economic inequality, which is really at record levels right now. We're, I think, back where we were um, uh, during the age of the Great Gatsby, aren't we? Yes, um, absolutely. And 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 these are policies that actually make it so much harder for families to succeed. They're really hollowing mm. out the social safety net and make it hard, making it harder for working families to be able to make it work.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and as 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 we think about the, the it, this connection between, you know, religious nationalism and economic policies. I think even as we think about race, one of, one of my professor friends the other day, you know, asked me if I, if I had read on racial capitalism and in the past, I had, I had to kind of delve into the ideas and the thoughts of Robin D.G. Kelly or Kianga Yamada Taylor uh, and, and this narrative of understanding You know, that both race and capitalism are so intertwined with one another or race and economic policies are so intertwined with one another. I think it's so important for us today to understand that that even religion and religious nationalism and economic policies are so bound to one another. I think that it's so important for us to, in some sense, in our analysis and our understanding, to be interdisciplinarians or, or to take you know, various perspectives to help us understand that. And I think as a journalist, as we talk talking about telling this story today and you writing the power, you, you are a journalist. And I'm so interested, going back to our collective history and our collective memory and the struggle, you said whoever controls the past in some sense controls the present in a very real way, you know, control the future. So you're a journalist. And I'm so interested in what is, do you see is the critical role of journalists whether they're investigative journalists or journalists who are, you know, social critics. You know, what critical role do journalists play today in how we understand where we're coming, where we come from, but also understand where we can go.
1: I think journalism right now is vital. Uh, we have an administration that is openly and explicitly engaging in systematic min- misinformation and corruption on what appears to be an unprecedented scale. I mean, yes. they get away with a lot. And I think without yes. journalism, they would get away with everything. Yes. Um, now, I do have a, a little bit of um, a bone to pick uh, with some of, of the religion, uh, ju- some aspects of religion. Look, I, I love a lot of religion journalists and you know, a lot of them do amazing work. But here's the thing. I think it's difficult, as we discussed earlier, to talk about the political actions of religious groups. And it's a a lot of uh, mainstream political reporters will ignore those stories. And I think sometimes some religion journalists do too. And I think they do it for different reasons. I mean, I think um, religion journalism, let's start with that cohort. A lot of uh, religion journalists come to um the field because they're really interested in religion they're kind of you know religion groupies and they're really interested in you know this form of worship and what this group is doing and that stuff is fascinating and i envy them because it would be really fun to do those kinds of stories all the time um i've always been really interested in religion as an expression of sort of Hmm. human uh humanity and and those are really nice stories to do sometimes but um you know, there really is a difference between criticizing religion and criticizing the political actions of religious groups. And I wish people sometimes weren't afraid to actually look at that. I think some religion journalists actually ignore the political uh, side of the story because um, they find it uh, contentious, Mm. or maybe some of them don't even want to draw attention to it. Um, You know, I, I... came to this field of inquiry, really, as a political reporter. And I wish more political reporters would engage in analysis of the religious right. Um, the, the fact that so few do, I mean, more now, but um, not enough. I mean, I've been going for the past decade to you know all these right-wing gatherings and conferences like Values Voters Summits and Road to Majority Conference Conferences. Now, these are thoroughly political events. You have high powered activists with a lot of money behind them getting together to mobilize voters and gain power to advance a really regressive agenda. But there are few reporters there. And many of those that are there are frankly reporting in language of values and religion that is um, not the right kind of framing. Does that make sense?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, without you know? question, without question, especially. You know, this idea of because of the kind of cultural like it's almost like taboo, you know, to 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 even engage in, you know, criticism of religion, because in some sense, one believes you're criticizing their identity and their faith because our religion and our identity are so intertwined with one another. And so I get that. And I think in some sense, like there there we would benefit from understanding, you know, this relationship between religion and bad forms of anti-democratic policies and politics and even how we engage in the most important political questions in American uh, public life today.
1: That's true. I mean, you know, movement leaders know that if you can get, you can dangle those culture war issues... Number one, you're going to control the vote. And number two, you're going to kind of miss, it's a kind of misdirection. So they like, you know, when movement leaders talking to the rank and file or when they're talking to um, uh, sort of um, pastors about issues that they should be communicating to the rank and file, it's all abortion all the time. Abortion is the beginning and the end, or like they might You know, after they talk about abortion, they might talk about religious liberty, and you know, maybe they'll talk about same-sex marriage or something like that. But when they're talking to leaders, or when they're talking to um, their political allies, or especially when they're talking to the plutocratic funders of the movement, it's it's a lot about economic policy: how the Bible uh, supports no taxes or low taxes for the rich, how the Bible supports. Uh, Minimal regulation of government or no regulation, how the government uh, doesn't support regulation of the environment, how environmentalism Mm -hmm. is a false theology, um, and how workers should, quote unquote, submit to their bosses, which is something that Ralph Drollinger has actually preached to political leaders. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, comparing this to... um, uh, uh, this the idea of you know submission during uh, the uh, time of peter so when peter was writing you know he said at the time of peter's writing uh it was like the idea of slave and master but now you know the mm. idea of submitting to one's boss carries through to today i mean this mm. is all mu- music to the ears of the movements Plutocratic funders, many of whom rely on minimal taxation, minimal regulation, and minimal rights for the workforce in order to grow and increase their profits.
2: So, earlier in the very beginning of this conversation, you said that you saw hope in a time of darkness and Uh you saw a pattern of redemption, kind of in a way. Um, So, how how do you see hope and redemption? I guess in this sense, we've spent this entire conversation talking about you know everything that's kind of been wrong in history and how it's gone wrong. But do you see a chance of redemption? I guess in a sense of um, political and religious oneness, <laughs> if I I don't, for lack of a better term.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I uh, see a lot of hope in. Younger people today, uh, who are um, much more politically engaged than just even mm. a few years ago, um, yes. seem much less racist in their personal attitudes, uh, less committed to fundamentalist religion, more progressive, yes. and willingness. You know, they have a willingness to question um, mm. some of the arrangements that that have been yes. governing our society for a while. But um, of course, here's the thing. You, there's really no substitute for the power of the vote. The reason why mm. the religious right has, dispro, this is a, a, they're like a minority of the population, but they have disproportionate political power because they vote in highly disproportionate numbers. Um, and also because they've gamed the vote through gerrymandering and voter suppression mm. and things like that. And then you also have like 40 to 50% of people in America who really just don't vote at all. Um, right. So given that you don't need a majority to win elections, you just need a committed minority to access the levers mm. of power. But, um, mm. you know, I think the challenges that we face today are political. And so the answers are going to be political, too. There are things we can do as individuals, like holding ourselves and members of our inner circle accountable to vote. And then, yes. you know, it doesn't just end with your vote, you've got to uh, hold your elected officials accountable to enact the policies that they've, you know, that they got your vote on. And then, you know, volunteering to help get the vote out. There are also a lot of things we can only really do when we join together, I think, about what the right has done. They've invested in all the tools of modern political campaigns like data, media, messaging, you know, all that gerrymandering. That took a lot of effort. we got to undo that. we got to undo voter suppression. That's going to take a lot of effort. So we can don't, you know, Donate our time and energy to these kinds of collective organizations that are trying to reestablish the vote and and get messages out to people that to help them understand that, hey, you know it's you maybe you don't love the front runner maybe you love the front runner who knows but it's mm. not just about the front runner it's about who are they going to point to the federal courts who are they going to point mm. to the circuit courts and the supreme court um, who are they going to point to like had these different um, these different uh, cabinets or are they going to point someone to the department of education who actually believes in public education and wants to strengthen it? Or are they going to point someone who wants to destroy it as, Mm. you know, you know, the current person who's, you know, I I don't want to say leading the department of education, because that would be an overstatement in the current uh, conditions. Mm. So, you know, (laughs) religious nationalists are using the tools of, Democratic political culture to end democracy, but I continue to believe that those same resources can be used to restore it.
2: Mm.
0: Yes. Wow. Wow. That is absolutely incredible that, you know, we always have to hold out in some sense the belief that as we work together synergistically that somehow we can enact, you know, a more perfect union and in some sense that we, you know, have not experienced in some sense in its fullest. Uh, Even that we do not see, even as we think about C.T. Vivian and the passing Mm. of C.T. Vivian and John Lewis and this long black freedom struggle, that this struggle for freedom for all people has been rooted in, you know, ordinary people realizing the power of one person themselves joining together with others in hopes that somehow we'll hold our nation up to its highest ideals of the triple democratic creed of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we are so happy, Catherine, that you joined us today to talk, you know, religious nationalism, to talk democracy, to talk this process, and help us become more aware of the struggles that we're facing in 2020. You know, it's election year, and so we need all the help that we can get uh, to organize, to get educated, to mobilize for a more loving and just world. Catherine, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for joining so much. us.
2: Such a pleasure to this is be, be, yeah, be with you guys. That this has been uh, this has been a pleasure, really.
0: Quickly, Catherine, how can people get in touch with you?
2: Oh,
1: they can follow me on social Twitter, media. kath S. Stewart. That's uh, two S's. K-A-T-H-S-S-T-E-W-A-R-T, or they can contact me through my website, which is Stewart.me.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Well, it is the end of another episode of Stories Between Us. We were happy to be joined by Katherine Stewart, who is the author of The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. She writes about politics, policy, and religion for The New York Times, The Washington Post, NBC, and The New Republic. As her previous book was stated, The Good News Club was an examination of the religious right and public education. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you like, subscribe and share. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Stories Between Us. I'm Stu and I'm Modi and we are out.